I think now that it'll circle on, it'll be all right. Yeah. Okay. We're, uh, we're in a sermon series on Colossians. Um, and again, this, this kind of church that Paul visits is not one of the places that he actually, actually ever, ever, I'm sorry, one of the churches that, that, that he writes this letter to is not a place that Paul ever visits. He's kind of writing on behalf of some friends. Um, whether he's writing from Rome or whether he's writing from Ephesus is, is a little bit unclear, but um, he's writing this letter to this church um, here in Colossae is the name of the, the, the town, the village. It wasn't a big, big town. It was kind of more of a smaller, maybe a suburb city, um, kind of in, in, in a modern-day Turkey. The earthquake that happens, I think it was around A.D. 90, kind of levels the town. There's not a lot that we know necessarily about this particular village, but we kind of learn about Colossae from the surrounding villages, never rebuilt, not, not, not a big enough town to, to actually have some interest in. And then as we kind of have been looking through this letter that Paul writes, I forgot this isn't going to work. Um, as we look at this letter that Paul writes, you know, he kind of starts off in 1 through 14. He talks about just how thankful he is for the church. Um, and then he talks about the supremacy of Christ. We kind of we kind of utilize that that poem, that song that he kind of puts in the middle there. Um, and then his labor for the church, the way that he's struggling and laboring, he's suffering, he's serving for the church. Um, when I made the comment about the appendix, uh, referencing that sermon that I preached the last time we were together, which would have been July 24th, and I said that this church is full of non-appendix sort of people. People, everybody in this church labors, serves, gives, is active, is loving. Um, that's why I've had so much joy over the last 11 years leading this church is because this is a church full of servants, people who give and who are part of it. So you see that it, same enthusiasm that Paul says, I'm suffering, I'm serving, I'm laboring for the church. And then he's, he's going to talk about protecting the church this week um, in, in 2, 6 through 23. Uh, and it's already almost 11 o'clock, and usually I'm done by about 11.15. So I, don't, I think maybe I'll get through about the first third of my sermon, and then we'll just, I know there's a lot of kids back there for Shannon, so we'll, we'll do what we can do, and then we'll, we'll see how far we get. Um, so I, like I said, I don't, I don't think we'll make it through the whole time. But I did want to open up by talking about the Dallas Mavericks. And the Dallas Mavericks, um, Ellie, you might have some reference to the story. The, the young lady who was kidnapped from the Dallas Mavericks. Did anybody hear about this story? This was back in April, right? Yeah. Heard about it? it was a, they were at a away, away game, right? They were here. At, this is the American Airlines Arena in Dallas. Yeah, and then wasn't it somebody saw something that was wrong or something? Exactly. Neither. <laughs> she gets up and she goes to the restroom. Three people take her, right? They, the dad goes to the police and says, my daughter's been kidnapped. Well, the policy in, in the Dallas police is that unless there's evidence of kidnapping, they treat it as a runaway, right? So she's treated as, and has, who's heard about this story? Nobody? Okay, so she's treated as a, so you guys kind of have some context. 
Like, I think, I, I think like 15, 16. Yeah, yeah, like kind of 15, 16. So the Dallas PD says, we have no evidence of a kidnapping. So they say, um, she's a runaway. Well, the dad's losing his mind thinking, my daughter's not a runaway. This is not the kind of daughter that I have that would run away. And he hires a private firm that kind of, so it's not necessarily Good Samaritan. He hires a private firm who kind of specializes in trafficking and kidnapping. And they find his daughter, this private firm, not the police. And the police obviously have kind of come under some fire for, you know. And again, that's, I understand why the, they do it that way. But they find his daughter about 10 days later in a hotel room in Oklahoma City, kind of part of a trafficked circle. Um, and there was obviously some sexual exploitation that happens there. So nobody's heard of it? This, this was back in April? You guys have heard of it? But, huh? Go dad. And it's, it's like a really bizarre story. And you're probably sitting here like, Jenny, I saw your face like, what? And you're sick to your stomach. And but I don't want to shock anybody with this. Like, this isn't supposed to be like this, you know. Um, and, <laughs> um, and the, obviously the details are a little bit sparse as far as what they're able to report and talk about. She's a minor and, you know, all those sorts of things. Yes, they have arrested people and they've arrested people beyond what, who the people who were involved. So, um, but it, and it, I was looking at it like, okay, well, how often is kidnapping happen? What's, it's actually really, um, so again, not to freak you out, it's, it's really, it's extremely rare in our country to actually be kidnapped by a complete stranger. Most of the kidnappings that happen, most of the times somebody's taken, it's a family member who's kind of, I don't know, kind of gone off, whatever. So, But as far as like just some random person coming up and snatching up a child, it, it gets pretty, pretty rare. Um, but here's why I bring this up, right? And here's why I kind of wanted to maybe bring this kind of captive kidnapping story. Is this is what Paul's going to talk, this is the imagery that Paul's going to use in Colossians 2.6, right? So if you go to Colossians 2.6, we'll, we'll read these verses together. Fifteen, yeah. Yeah, and again, not to, to, to shock anybody or weird any people out, but I thought that that was, maybe it was a little intense of a, an example. But let's read this together, and then the, the verse that he's kind of referencing, it, what, what's, what, what I was kind of introducing was 2.8. But let's read this in the round, so um, I'll, I'll open it up and then read a verse or two. So Paul says in uh, Colossians 2, verse 6, he says, So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And he says, this, see to it that no one takes you captive, right? This is kind of the, this is what he, the word that he's playing with, this kind of idea of being taken captive, of being kidnapped, of being, you know, um, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ.
Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or the Sabbath day. These are, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rulers? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual there it is. So, Paul, again, kind of starts off this passage. He says, you know, live in Christ, be rooted, be built up in him, strengthened in your faith. Um, and then he says this, again, this, this kind of image which we were, we were talking about earlier. He says, see that no one takes you captive, right? This, this, kind, of, this kind of idea that man is, is sick to our stomach as we think about this, this girl who was taken captive. Um, Paul wants to express to us that there is a real danger. Right? There is a real threat. There is something out there that, that we need to be vigilant against. We need to be very aware of. Right? And one of the things that Paul is doing in this letter is he's speaking to kind of insiders. Right? He, has to, he has to fight the battle on two fronts. Right? He has to speak to the insider, to, to these Judaizers. Judaizers, again, think about the people who are converting to Christianity. Right? Jews who were converting to Christianity, but they were bringing a lot of the baggage into the new faith, right? They were legalists with rules and overly religious opinions, right? So they would say, hey, that's, yeah, Christ, is, he's, he did a great job, the cross, everything, but these are, these are the additional things that you really need to do to, to become a real Christian, right? Like you need to, to follow these laws, these holidays. You probably kind of saw a few of those in there. Um, uh, and so he had, Paul has to address this, right? At the same time, and he intertwines these arguments to a group on the outside called the Gnostics. And these generally were Gentiles, right? People who are not of the, of the Jewish faith or the tradition. 
And they were immersed in kind of contemporary, what we would say is cultural religion, uh, worldly perspectives. And they were advocating for additional steps. And, and really specifically, the, the Gnostics believed that there was a special knowledge that was beyond Christ. That if you were to able to take hold of that knowledge, that's what would bring you into the fullness. And Paul uses this word, into the fullness of of life, God, harmony, those sorts of things. So Paul is battling both of those things in the church, which is in some senses what what most pastors do is we have to talk about, hey, what are the issues that are happening inside the church that we need to address and deal with? What about the kind of outside cultural religion, the religion of consumerism, the religion of, um, we've talked about, uh, oh, come on. That we talked about just a couple weeks ago. If it feels good, do it. You be you. Um, yeah, individualism. But there is a, a phrase that we used for it. It'll come to me in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He, what, how did, what did he call it? He called it expressive individualism, right? This kind of idea that you know, just the highest goal is to express your, be yourself. You know, we have to we have to battle those outside, and we have to also battle the inside. So. Paul says that there is a real threat happening inside, happening outside. And then he kind of um, says that, that it's hollow, it's deceptive philosophy. Some of the different translations, there's wrong and shallow answers. Big words, intellectual double talk. Was that the message? I think that, that maybe Peterson translates, pretending to be full of wisdom when they're filled with endless arguments of human logic. So he says these, and I, I think that there's probably more in there, but here's, here's the way that I kind of saw what, what Paul wants to battle, right? He says the hostile, right, the dangerous, the deceptive theologies, philosophies, perspectives that he needs to go after is he needs to go after this idea that Jesus is not God, right? So that's why in verses 10 and 11, he says, uh, he says, uh, I'm sorry, that should be nine, nine and 10 for in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Christ is the head over every power and authority, right? So the idea here is that Jesus is not God, right? That there is some other deity that, that is God. And Paul has to address that, right? And then he has to address this concept of you not being worthy, Right? And what I mean by you not being worthy is you're an outsider. You haven't done all the appropriate steps. You're not fully on the inside. And then the last one is kind of this outside opinions matter, which in 16, he says, don't let anyone judge you. Right? So this kind of idea of like you can't be judged. You know, like Don't let anybody else judge you um, by what you eat or drink, religious festivals. So he's com- combating, he's dealing with these hostile, these dangerous theologies that would want to take people captive, that would want to kidnap them, that would want to lead them astray. So I don't know, maybe I'll get through the the first one. Um, We'll see. Well, maybe we'll just stop at the first one and we'll come back to two and three the next time we gather. Um, Jesus is not God, right? Now, one of the things that Paul does so brilliantly is he's actually stealing Gnostic vocabulary and he's weaponizing it against them, right? And he does this throughout this passage where these words, right? Philosophy, fullness, powers and authorities, humility, disqualify, self-imposed worship. 
these words are kind of words that Gnostic philosophers would have used, right, in kind of describing their perspective, their religion. I'm trying to think like in Christianity, we kind of have some insider lingo, um, like born again. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like we kind of have some, this would have kind of been inside Gnostic language lingo that they would have used to help describe, you know, kind of who's in and who's out. So Paul takes these words that the Gnostics would have used, and again, he, he weaponizes it against them. So for example, when he says, in Christ is the fullness, right? The Gnostics would have said that the fullness is the sum of the supernatural forces of, of the gods who controlled the fate of humanity. So I, here's, you know, the different, the different Gnostic gods, right? Um, Sophia, Aeon, Amnon-Ra, right? So all these kind of gods who come together, this pantheon of gods who ruled, and in that kind of collective grouping was the fullness. The sum of their force was the fullness. And this is, again, kind of contemporary religious philosophy. Um, And so when Paul says in, in verse nine, he says, in Christ... And again, he takes this Gnostic term, fullness, and in some senses kind of weaponizes it against them. He says, in Christ is the fullness of the deity, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, right? So Paul subverts this kind of whole, this whole notion of this pantheon of gods having the fullness and places it directly on Christ, Um, he puts it all on Christ. Now, I was thinking about, okay, that, that happened in the first century. It's, it happens today, right? Oh, here we go. What do we got, Josie? I need, a commercial, I need a commercial break to gather my thoughts. I'm getting a little sweaty in my armpits and whatnot, so. We're good. Yeah, that's just kind of part of the part of the gig. Uh, my son's grunting over here all morning long, speaking in tongues and wisdom. And Dawson, are you doing better? I heard you were having a fit back there. Here comes another one. We got. We just got the whole situation going. Um, so this happens in the first century, right? So Paul's dealing with this in the first century. Jesus is not God. That's why he says, "Hey, we have to." Are you guys going out to the park? Do they go out kind of through the coffee now area? Is that no, the way they go? Okay. This could be. Maybe they're cold. That room gets like freezing cold though because there's one. We're all off track now. I, I just want to go like today it's, it's just common. Alex, you deal with this all the time. Like it's common. It's, it's, it's I'm not, I don't want to say it's more or less. I don't know. That people just say Jesus is not God, right? Like that's just kind of a, he, people would say he's a good moral teacher, right? Um, he's maybe an example of justice and nonviolence. He had, had great morality and lots of labels get attached to Jesus. But really to kind of make that, that ultimate step and claim that Jesus in, in, in Christ, all divinity lives in him. He is the divine son of God, even today is a staggering claim, right? Even today to say that there was a historical figure, Jesus, who lived as we did, and yet in some senses, he was the divine 
Son of God. He was God, the Creator God, walking. Even today, really to kind of put that into your brain and really, really take that seriously is like, that is a massive claim, right? Uh, to me, the, the greatest example of, of who, who's ever... Is that a whistle? <laughs> um, the, the greatest example of, of kind of talking about this was C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, right? And when people would say that Jesus is not God, this was C.S. Lewis's probably the greatest response to this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is just a common, this was common in, in Paul's day, C.S. Lewis's day, the kind of 30s, 40s, um, it's common today. He says, that is to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? He has, this is my favorite line. He would either be a lunatic on level with a, the man who says he is a poached egg. I don't know where he decided that. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And Lewis says, you got to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Lewis says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to, right? And so Lewis kind of really just puts it in, in some really stark black and white terms, which I think is what Paul is trying to do as well, too, is just kind of putting in these stark black and white terms. And he's saying, in Christ, the deity, it all has its fullness in him, in Christ, right? And he makes that staggering and world-altering claim, again, again and again, we see this in the New Testament, and just the way that Lewis kind of talks about this is just such a kind of a black and white image here. One of the great quotes about the divinity of Christ. So I'm going to end with this, and, and we'll, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, how, do, how would you, in today's culture, today's world, how would you, somebody who says, yeah, Jesus is not God, he, he's just not, he was a great moral teacher, he was an example, he was, you know, nonviolent, justice, those sorts of things, how would you explain that to a skeptic? And a lot of times what happens is people will just say, well, here, let me show you in the Bible, right, where it says that Jesus was, no, Paul says it right here in Colossians, but again, if somebody who's probably not willing to make the leap that Jesus is God, they're probably at the same time not willing to make the leap that this is any sort of authoritative text, right? So how would you then go to explain that? Um, just a couple thoughts came to my mind. Uh, just the overwhelming fondness for Jesus, right? And you can see this anywhere you go. I, I would say, sure, there's a couple people who are very antagonistic towards Jesus, but most people would say, man, that guy Jesus was something special, wasn't he? Like that guy, like the way that he lived, even his words, like people are like, there was a book that was written a couple years ago. It was called, uh, They Love Jesus, But Not the Church. 
Uh, it was written by a guy, I think he was up in Santa Cruz area, Dan Kimball, is he in Santa? Um, and he kind of writes this book about how people, they love Jesus, um, and sometimes his church, us, his representatives, don't do such a great job. But they, like, people just really are fond for Jesus, right? So maybe you start there with somebody and you just say, okay, like, if you're not willing to go all the way to Jesus as God, but you recognize that something's different about this guy, right? Something is unique that even you, 2,000 years later, with little to no knowledge about his words, his life, his deeds, like, even you look, look at that guy and be like, yeah, there's something special about that guy, right? And then another thing, too, is I would say you, you can talk to people about the, the rise of the early church. The resurrection, we talk about this often, which is the, the capstone. Um, we, we think about Jesus' divinity kind of rising and falling on this man who, who dies and then decides that, we, that he has authority over death itself. Uh, Jenny, as you were praying, and you were praying for the hope of heaven um, with Shar, and then Aaron linking that together with the lyrics that you were singing, that um, death is knocking at our door, it's all coming for us, mercy, mercy to the God who brings us life, that there was a man who, who decided death does not have authority over me, right? Jesus decides that he gets to tell death what to do. He gets, he's the one who gets to boss death around. Now, the early church hinges on this, right? That Jesus, that Jesus actually did this, that he rose from the, from the grave. And his ability, like his ability to do that was the piece of the puzzle that allowed, and N.T. Wright writes volumes about this, is the piece you just finished, uh, Chris, you just finished a book on this and probably picked up on some of this, is the major piece of the puzzle. How does a delinquent group of individuals, Gentile, Jewish, slave, free, in the midst of intense persecution, rise to any prominence, survive thousands and thousands of years? It's, 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 it's Christ. It's the resurrection the rise of the early church, which hinges on Jesus' death and resurrection. You think about changed lives. Again, so you start, you have a fondness for Jesus. How do you explain the early church? You talk about changed lives across time, culture, scope. Um, There hasn't been a real culture, time, place that the message of Jesus has not taken hold, right? Um, All across empires, um, everywhere. And this kind of goes beyond you know, think about like, like Oprah has all her great self-help business, you know, empires would spread their message, their gospel. You have the ancient philosophies. We have modern philosophers who we think are so brilliant, Marx and Nietzsche and those sorts of, those sort of people. But across time, culture, scope, um, this is, this is one of the, I mean, he's the only one to have ever done this. Do we have to take that, that sort of evidence seriously as we think about Jesus as God. And then, yeah, we'll close with this, that Jesus is true across time, culture, and scope. And what I mean by, by true, let me give you an example. Here's a great quote, and this is completely unrelated. Um, the erosion, Elliot, maybe you know this one. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. In a nation that was proud of hard work, 
strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now to tend to worship self-indulgence and con uh, consumption. Human, uh, human identity is no longer defined by what one does, by, but by what one owns. We've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. As you know, there is a growing disrespect for, gov for government and for churches and for schools, the news media, and other institutions. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the, it is the truth and it is a warning. We are at a turning point in history. There are two paths to choose. Anybody want to guess who spoke that? Anybody? Elliot, want to give it a shot? Native historian. Uh, I'm calling you a historian. I'm not saying this is a historian. Uh, that's a good one. I mean, that's, so that would put in the last five, ten years? The, the every, uh, Eric Foner, the, the historian Eric Foner, chronicler, chronicles the shift to you know, consumerism and consumption in the United States in the 20th century. But I don't yeah. think this is him. This is a, a good, uh, good old president by the name of Jimmy Carter in 1979. Oh. Right? And here's why I, I want to kind of talk about this. Because I've always been really impressed by people who are able to speak Something that's true, like this was true in 79, and we read it this morning like, yeah, that pretty much describes our situation today. Occasionally, you'll, you'll come across these, I was looking for one by Martin Luther King Jr., where he speaks something, and it's like, man, what, or what Lewis said in the 30s, right, in the 40s, right? And, and it becomes true, not only then, not only like, say, 45 years ago, but it's still true today. And what I mean by... Jesus' words being true across time, culture, and scope. Like, Jimmy Carter's words are true for the American experiment for maybe 50 to 100 years max. Like, those words will kind of have their expiration date, and we'll look at that as a historical artifact. Jesus' words, right? When you talk about somebody who is divine, the words of Jesus being true across time and culture and scope, changed lives across time and culture and scope, the rise of the early church through the resurrection and the overwhelming fondness of Jesus. And, and this is, man, that's just a sentence of Paul. Paul says, in, in Christ, the fullness of all divinity is. Sheesh, that was a long sermon. I apologize, y'all. And that was only the first one because I still have two more. <laughs> Two more. Should we just go for it until like 2 o'clock this afternoon? Anybody got anywhere to go? Um, I think, I think all of these things, as somebody who just says he's whatever, right, I think Lewis speaks really well about that, and Lewis says... Jesus doesn't first off just give you that option to just kind of be a whatever human being. To, to make the claims that Jesus made, right, you, you don't get this option of just like, eh, I just want to just kind of push him to the side or whatever. Jesus claims to be the son of God. Jesus makes those claims. So you either got to take him serious at his claim or not. 
And then again, just somebody else, you know, just these kind of, you know, hey, Jesus is just a whatever person. Hey, explore the curiosity. Why are you so fond about Jesus, right? You, you have a, a knowledge, an example, the rise of the early church. How would you explain the rise of the early church without the resurrection? How, how do you explain the, the message of Jesus radically, again, Alex, thanks for being here this morning because I've used you 10 times in my sermon, radically changing lives from one direction. We all are from one direction to the other. How do you explain somebody able to pick up the Bible in the 21st century, read it, and it just to like jump off the page and penetrate your heart and change, you know, again, talk about change in life, his words, his thoughts, his deeds. So I think those are all ways to kind of explore that idea of, of again, because people say that all the time, yeah, Jesus is a good person, nice guy, moral teacher, example, but he wasn't the son of God. And I just say, yeah, I don't, I don't think that Jesus gave us that option. And again, that's what Paul talks about too. Um, I, you know, I had some questions for discussion, but I think that they're kind of leading more towards Yeah, why don't we call it? And I think we can do some, some music. I think we can have the kids come in here. We'll take Eucharist um, and we'll pick up some, some thoughts and ideas in a couple of weeks too about more on this passage. So um, let me say a word of prayer. Because we are gathered this morning In, in the firm, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes we struggle with this. But to the best of you, know, we're, we're, like the, um, we're like the father who, who brings his son to Jesus. And he says, you know, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And... Um, and so we bring this confidence, this belief, this trust that Jesus, you are the divine, all the divinity finds its fullness in you. You are the divine son of God. And yet sometimes we're like, man, that's a crazy statement. Help my unbelief. And we waffle in between that. And, and on good days, we, it, on good days, we, we carry that hope and we carry that torch with such, um, with such enthusiasm, and some days it, it, it feels like the, the it feels like the wick of the candle is just smoldering. But we're gathered because Jesus, you are the divine Son of God, the one who defeated death, the one who brings us back to life, um, is the one whom we look to in every single situation. Sickness, health, death, ministry, jobs, finances. Everything you say is true because we know it to be. In our deepest selves, we know your words to be true. So Jesus, wherever we come in this morning into this narrative, we once again... um, The Son of God, we literally, in our hearts... We bow to you. We give you our worship. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We won't have her in a competition for most well-behaved child. Like 15 more minutes? Yeah, like 45?
usher, if you like to kind of stand in a posture of singing and praise, you can stand. If you want to stay seated, stay seated. You got to grab a kiddo, grab a kiddo.